it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Now we're heading into the 80s, the 80s, the 80s, the 80s. This is the One Sensational Shot Network. You're listening to The Electronic Labyrinth with Fletcher Walton and Luke Littleboy. I told Luke Littleboy that it was the 30th anniversary of Joe Dante's The Burbs and he's outdone himself. Luke, take it away. <laughs> well, we had a good weekend, Fletch. It all started with a bit of car trouble. Uh, I uh, <laughs> We had a problem with the car, took it in on the Friday and the, uh, the, the, the guy was scratching his beard shaking his head sorry mate you you won't be able to pick that up today uh you're gonna have to you're gonna have to pick it up on the monday this sounds like there's the a, beginning lot... of a b movie already exactly exactly and there's a much longer story there's this whole sequel about the actual car trouble it picks up then <laughs> after after the weekend but in in terms of the immediate weekend we, we got the bus got back home and because i now live out in the sticks um, if all intents purposes, the middle of nowhere, we uh, we, we we're screwed. We, there's not a whole lot to do. So um, luckily enough, I uh, in preparation for our Joe Dante episode and talking about the 30th anniversary of the Burbs, I put together um, a movie orgy, as it were, of <laughs> Joe Dante pictures for Lex and I to watch together, and it was really a really good fun uh, exercise. And I don't think I've ever done this before, and I I mean that I don't think I've ever done this before in chronological order. We watched pretty much every Joe Dante picture, you know, every film of a director that got a theatrical release, starting with 1978's Piranha, his Jaws, uh, you know, light-hearted Jaws rip-off, but which has that certainly does the same thing very well, and going right the way through to uh, to the Hole, which is his uh, not the latest picture, the latest one's bearing the X from 2014, but the Hole. Was uh, it was 2009? Little independent picture he did. So, on the way, of course, such wonderful stops as the Howling, his werewolf picture from 1981. Uh, we went through to Gremlins because I didn't realise this. Lex had not seen the first Gremlins; she'd only seen Gremlins two. So it had to happen. I had to get out the original Gremlins. We rewatched that. Mist Explorers, his other Spielberg collaboration, uh, and I don't think anyone's seen it. But uh, then we went on to Inner Space, which again Spielberg as producer. And uh, that that's that's a great fun film. We'll get into that in a minute. And then we even watched his Landis, uh, John Landis collaboration of an ode to late night TV. It's essentially a, a sketch sketch movie, Amazon Women on the Moon, which was a tremendous amount of fun. And of course, like you said, we celebrate the 30th anniversary of uh, The Burbs. So we'll get into that in a lot more detail. We skipped Gremlins 2. I think I saw that as recently as a year ago. But we also saw the fantastic John Goodman starring Matinee. Again, a love letter to, to genre uh, cinema from the 50s. Uh, I've seen Small Soldiers enough, but I did manage to pick up at CEX for 50p Looney Tunes back in action. So I, I checked that out as well, which I, I haven't seen that probably since 2003, 2004. Maybe up late at your house once, Fletch, uh, <laughs> back at university or something, on at some ungodly hour in the morning. And yeah, like I say, then The Hole, which is uh, a really great independent picture he's done. And... I suppose my thesis for Joe Dante is is twofold. Number one, what a wonderful filmmaker who fell into a particular niche uh, at the beginning of his career. Because, of course, 
he worked for Roger Corman. He's part of that alumni, along with uh, the likes of James Cameron and some other people. And um, we can talk about some of that in a bit. But of course, he, he then fell into it fell into this niche with by making Piranha, and then suddenly getting offered. He was even offered Jaws three off the back of Piranha because Piranha's ripping Jaws off with a huge uh, smile on its face uh, and does its own thing too in terms of 70s paranoia of do not trust the government. There's the conspiracy theory here. Um, but then, uh, ironically enough, he was then offered Jaws 3, People Nothing, which at the time was, <laughs> yeah. the, was the title of Jaws 3, which was going to be a spoof of itself. But, That's right, yeah, written by Johnny Hughes as well. Around the time that written Hughes by Johnny did Hughes. Class Reunion and Vacation, they pitched that, and then as I read it, Spielberg got wind of it, and... Spielberg has never had the best understanding of comedy. There's humour in his films, but the maybe the one real comedy he's done, 1941, is one of his least successful films, both cinematically and commercially. And so it doesn't surprise me that although it's clear Spielberg has identified in Dante and Landis uh, an exciting, satirical, zesty chaos you know that anarchic spirit but Spielberg can't replicate it so it, it does make sense that he can see it in Dante and Landis and take them and, and give them the time to do what they want to do with it but yeah Spielheimer can't do it himself mm, yeah I, I do know exactly what you mean I think he lives in the 80s kind of lived vicariously through those guys to do mm. the more outrageous mm. uh anarchic side of things and we should so say um, Zemeckis, Sorry, as, Zemeckis as well because he produced it was his patronage of Zemeckis, which had them writing 1941, which put Zemeckis and Bob Gale on I Want to Hold Your Hand and used cars, Romance in the Stone and Back to the Future. So, yeah, um, alongside, I feel like I'm interjecting here, but we'll get, we'll get back to your important thesis no, statement fine. in just a moment. But alongside uh, Spielberg's patronage of that lot, um, they, they sort of all merge into one at some point because there's the Coleman crew of Lewis Teague, John Demme, John Kaplan, Alan Arkush, Paul Bartel, and Joe Dante may be the most famous genre director out of those. But then mm. simultaneously, as he moves out of the patronage of Coleman, he's taken under the wing of Spielberg, who's already got Zemeckis and is making moves with John Landis as well. And that's why Dick Miller, who is Joe, mm. the, the wonderful Dick Miller in all, almost all of Joe Dante's pictures, he turns up in... 1941 and used cars and there's a a little bit of trading of actors very exciting very i mean we're talking about 40 years ago now but a a really (laughs) a really creative time but this is it we we can't tell the story of, of joe dante in the 80s without talking about steven spielberg and the just the i mean chris columbus comes into it as well but the he proliferation does, yeah. of creativity coming out of essentially one stable um, and mm. the, the many of these directors primed by Roger Coleman, then Spielberg moves in and somewhat legitimises it. But that's the thing, as we're about to say with Joe Dante, he, even when he goes legit, he still wants to bite the hand that feeds him, which I love. So let's get back to your, your, yeah. your two-pronged yeah. thesis statement. Well, yeah, you couldn't have put it better. I, I couldn't put it better myself. I, I think that's it. He... He's a he's a he's a genre filmmaker who started to make big studio pictures with the likes of Spielberg, but still was subversive and uh, has a real sense of humor about it. And, and and you're right, he he he's anarchic 
and he does bite the hand that feeds. He holds a, he, we talk about it a lot. He holds a mirror up to just the whole studio system, uh, and you know, nowhere is that better seen than in the second Gremlins. But it's all over his pictures. Yeah. Uh, even back to um, to Piranha, which I hasten to add is not a studio picture. This is when he was under the the Roger Corman umbrella, as it were. But when we were watching that, Lex turned to me and said, "Man, this is a '70s film." Uh, and she, what she was talking about was the just that anti-authoritarian mistrust of government. Yeah, and, uh, but because the the piranhas, I, I I know he's talked about the the initially with the piranhas that there was this whole the uh, whole idea of um, where they come from and, and none of the scripts were that satisfactory. Whereas that their version, when he got his teeth into it, pardon the pun, um, he that they started to to reshape it around the idea of well, it's it was a an experiment from Vietnam, you know that the, these were going to take. It was a, a military experiment that was going to destroy the Vietnamese army, and uh, then of course they were the, the war was over, and they were they were contained within this facility. So yeah, he's he's always had that, and it goes all the way through to his last studio picture, Looney Tunes Back in Action, where there's a tremendous amount of uh, jokes in there about how. Um, the studio just looks at demographics and what works. There's a lot of yeah. pie charts and graphs and this kind of thing. And and the Looney Tunes are literally riffing on it, you know. And um, he described Looney Tunes back in action as the most painful year and a half of his life because he was trying like hell. Hell, he he said he did it for Chuck Jones. He was trying like hell to to maintain the integrity of the Looney Tunes characters all the while while Warner Brothers execs were saying, why can't Bugs Bunny just do some hip hop? Or something, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so so yeah. There's a real thread, but the the second thing I would say to that is then look at the past ten fifteen years since Looney Tunes, and he's done a couple of independent pictures, and and you can put Landis in this as well. You can put John Carpenter in this. Why aren't people giving them any money? <laughs> yeah, and maybe it's because they're finally they're not going to fit that system anymore. And maybe as, as as much as we joke about the Hollywood system, even back in the 80s and the 90s, maybe then it, maybe it still was a little bit of a Wild West, you know, off the back of the whole new cinema, new Hollywood thing. Maybe Lucas and others had, had, had made it enough of a playing field for creatives to play in, for people like Joe Dante to get by making studio pictures. Because it's it sure as hell that Marvel aren't going to give him Ant-Man 3, hmm. I don't think. There are a bunch of hepcats and hippies, but it's not that they... It, like my old man always says, Don Letts said, punk's not on your head, it's in your head. And that applies to Landis, Dante Carpenter, Walter Hill as well. They may not look like counterculturalists, but innate within their being. They're old enough that they remember Jack Kerouac beat culture, but then mm. also young enough that they could just about interact with the hippie culture at the end of the 60s as well. So Dante was born... In the middle of the 40s, I always think of people coming of age, not at 13 or 14, but more like 18 or 21. So he's around um, when Coleman is just starting off in the 50s and comes of age mm. at a slightly later time. The overarching theme with those directors is, as you've said, an, a relentless questioning of authority and a feeling that whenever presented with uh, a structure, with a system, these guys are there to say... Yeah, but we we know it's bullshit, right? You do understand this is all bullshit. This is what happens with most of Joe Dante's pictures in the 80s. He sets up an environment in order to tear it down. And as he does so, the anarchy and the excitement of it is a little bit like Animal House, mm. wherein you, you, uh, you're in the middle of a maelstrom and can't help but smile and grin as everything is being torn down, all the sacred cows 
And yeah, I think there's a lot to be said there, like with Dante, the way in which he satirises cinema and television, it's not that he um, it's not that he rails against convention in the way that Kevin Williamson did, for instance, with Scream, or Shane Black with Last Action Hero and some of his pictures. Mm. He doesn't necessarily go against convention, but it's it's quite a marvellous trick that Dante pulls off, wherein when we watch one of his pictures, we know we're watching a movie, but they don't show their hand to the audience as much as is later done in the 90s and then into the kind of into the satire that we've had over the last 15 years of, of or almost 20 years of this century. You know you're watching a Joe Dante picture because it has his set of actors and it has mm. many deep references to 50s cinema. But yeah, there's normally a Forbidden Planet robot in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's, never a, there's rarely a wink to the audience, even when, like at the end of The Burbs, Corey Feldman literally speaks to the audience I never feel removed from the characters. I don't feel like I'm watching film characters. I'm invested in those characters. Mm. I only rewatched a couple of his pictures in preparation for this. I wish I'd been with you for your movie weekend. I would love to have been immersed for 36, 48 hours as you were in that universe with Dick Miller, Robert Picardo, Kenneth Toby, Kevin McCarthy, etc., etc., Belinda <laughs> Belaski. As you said, if you watch from Piranha, not only do you see him adding actors, Wendy Schall, Henry Gibson, Archie Hahn. You see Joe Dante develop from film to film, picking up John Horror as cinematographer, picking up Jerry Goldsmith. And he's getting better at w- what he does, just in general. Mm. And, and that's, that, that's a, obviously, from a technical point of view, the film's become far more slick because he's not sitting there in the editing room himself like he did on Piranha and the Howling. Yeah. Um, he, sitting there up all night long, filming all day, editing at night. Um, you know he has a team but he's also just adding to his uh, r- language and, and repertoire so like, like I say we go from the government paranoia of, of, of Piranha through to um, right the way through to Gremlins 2 the new batch which is uh, riffing on the very idea of making a sequel and yeah. uh, and, and the lunacy of doing it and uh, at, at, at one point the um, is it Leonard? Yes, Leonard Moulton, isn't it? Leonard yeah. Moulton, who gave the first film a terrible review, is is giving the film a review in the film, and then the Gremlins come out and eat him. Like, yeah, like yeah, it's it's fantastic. It this really is, is why, when I was ten years old and first getting into cinema, Joe Dante was the most exciting director to me because, and I noticed this with the cinematography of the Burbs as well. And I'll come back to it in a bit, but he brings in the audience and makes it a, a private intelligent satirical joke that we can be a part of the the entrance mm. fee is only being able to think for yourself mm. which is i think what the these directors that uh, primed themselves in the 70s and then essentially went mainstream in the 80s i think that's what they did really well a generation that came of age around the time of vietnam then their working lives began in the nixon administration and they saw watergate and a number of ways in which America lost its innocence. And I think within that chaos, they were so understanding of a system that it wasn't as if they were cynical. They knew there's no way of changing this. What we can Mm. do is stand apart from it, separate ourselves from it, and kick against the pricks as hard as we can, like in Animal House. In this case, I think we have to go all out. 
I think this situation absolutely requires a really futile and stupid gesture be done on somebody's part. We're just the guys to do it. Let's do it. Let's do it! It's flailing just to flail. It's simply existing in opposition as a radical act. I think part of it is is his punk rock aesthetic. Before punk rock was even mm. a thing, before we even knew it was, going back to the whole Don Letts thing, punk rock's not on your head, it's, it's in your head. And, and uh, I mean, he was originally, a, he wanted to be a cartoonist as a kid. And he obviously was gro- growing up with the Saturday, Saturday matinee films from the, from the 50s, all the B-movie pictures. He, he would stay up late watching them on, on TV and, and he was into famous monsters, a film and screen magazine, all that kind of oh, thing. Oh, it's that he Forrest J. Ackerman's in... thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he was already into the counterculture, even as a kid. You know, wanting to be a cartoonist, for God's sake. You know, th- th- back then, that was the counterculture yeah. sort of um, uh, a career, you know, completely outside of of, of the mainstream. E- even if you were getting your... Um, there's quite a romantic idea to the cartoonist. You know, e- even if your uh, cartoon is in a, a, a national publication like like Schultz or whatever with the peanuts, at the end of the day, you're still sitting there all week on your own, just crafting these little pieces of of uh, of commentary on on everyday life. Yeah, and, and remember as well, going... when he's five, ten, twelve years old, that's the height of Weird Science, EC Comics, Mad Magazine mm. by William M. Gaines, Tales from the Crypt. And mm. and that stuff was it was outside of the comics code, and to have mm. that as an influence was to show you're you're weird and far out. I think part of my rejection of current mainstream alternative culture, we're constantly being lectured by squares. I think that's what it is. That's why I preferred the seventies and the eighties, where Divine in Hairspray is a freak and strange, and John mm. Waters is strange, and you hold those people dear to your heart. And even into the the pop of the eighties, like Frankie Goes to Hollywood they don't necessarily require mainstream acceptance. They've understood that they've grown up as something different. And now, just like I said about Animal House, just like Joe Dante, they want to rail against everything. Take it all down. You know, we'll do our thing on the periphery Mm. and we'll shock and be transgressive. And there's nothing you can do about that because we don't want to buy into your system. This is probably why I look around and think... Where are the weirdos? I don't want Frank Black. I want Black Francis. These days, <laughs> the oddballs like um, he, he's making making more Pixies records, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This he's he's kind of gone legit. Where's Brainiac? Where are the weirdos? Anyway, let, let's get yeah. back to Joe Dante. Well, I, I just think from that, from those aspirations, unlike Lucas and some of the other, I know I know Spielberg didn't go to film school, but unlike Lucas and um, and Coppola and a lot of those new cinema guys who who were all UCLA and, and went to film school, uh, Joe Dante went to. Roger Corman for a job, having grown up with his 50s B-movies as a kid. And Corman said, fine, you can edit my trailers. And that was where he learnt film, was in taking existing footage to, and, and trying to cut together a trailer for, for, for these Roger Corman films. And I think that it that's fascinating to me, that he learnt on the job just by editing minute-long trailers and we talk a lot these days you know everyone talks about uh, Fincher and people who are ex-music video uh, producers and I, you know what the principle's the same that he that he was taking these these two hour long film hour and 30 minute films and, and making these these taut minute and a half 
trailers for them and he talks mm. about how you, he, he learned then how to become an efficient director if not a good director an efficient one because then when you're setting up shots you realize well hold on i don't need that angle and i don't need that angle all i need is these two angles and then i'm done and um i think that that gets, going back to this kind of punk rock thing that that was where he's at he didn't go to film school no one stood up with a with a map and a pointer and told him what to do he, mm. he learned through cutting these trailers and was offered I know I keep going back to Piranha, but you know that came in was was an external um, script that Corman acquired, which wasn't always the case. Sometimes they the, the scripts were written in, internally in in Corman's uh, powerhouse, but um, it came as an external script and it kind of was begged Roger Corman to, to let him uh, to let him have a crack at it. He said, "Fine, you can make the film as so long as you, you still do the trailers for me." <laughs> so that was it. He was he, he was still he was moonlighting to become a director, and uh, I I just think that the fact that he learnt on the job cutting trailers, I think, says an awful lot about the sort of person uh, that he he was, and that that to me is fascinating. And uh, I think it's a bit of a shame that he he became typecast as, as a genre director i do wonder what other stuff he could have done had he not come from that direction but but nevertheless um you know it gave us a wonderful body of work but yeah yeah i think i think that's the punk rocker in him even if it was before his time although having said that um around the time of piranha the, was it the second film he co-directed kind of ghost directed i think he was sort of second unit was rock and roll high school of course the, yeah. the ramones um the ramones picture which as a kid when i was when i was into the ramones i assumed it was like a hard day's night or something uh until i watched it when i was about 15 16 and uh realized the ramones couldn't act at all and they were only in it for about 20 minutes at the end <laughs> which is in stark contrast to hard day's night where the beatles are the stars yeah but that's it that's it i mean have you ever seen um rock i don't mean to put you on the spot have you ever seen rock and roll high school at all it's very it's very of its time I've only seen it once. I saw it when I was living in San Francisco at a class which was taught by Joe McBride, who mm. I I think he wrote it. He he wasn't part of Coleman's stable, but he was mm. involved in out not outsider art, but slightly left of centre filmmaking at the end of the seventies. He was um, as a a film historian. He worked and interviewed Bogdanovich and Orson Welles a lot. This is during the period when it's like Orson Welles was living in Bogdanovich's pool house or sli- sleeping in his shed. So I, I watched mm. it then. It's interesting that you bring up Hard Day's Night, though, because that's the kind of anarchism that we can draw a line to. Remember that? I remember um, watching Hard Day's Night for the first time and seeing, I think it's John Lennon reading Son of Mad, a Mad Magazine compendium book. And I thought I was nine years, ten years old, and I thought, I've got that. I've got that book. Mm. You and I don't talk about the Beatles much, and certainly I don't. I, I, they don't play a big part in my life. Is the easiest way to put it. But the importance of their explosion onto British culture and the anarchy of what they brought to it, you, you could draw. You could definitely draw a line from what Dick Lester did in the '60s with the knack and how to get it, and Hard Day's Night, up to what Coleman and Dante are doing in the late 70s. Um, but what were you going to say about yeah. Rock and Roll High School? Rock, 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 rock and Roll High School. I don't remember. I suppose <laughs> I, I was making a vague allusion to the fact that it was a bit punk because the Ramones were in it. Um, I mean, I know initially it was Disco High School, so it, had, it oh. was not going to... I think they were just looking for a band. It was Roger Corman. This script came about. It was a story idea, I think. Joe Dante was, I think, was involved. And, yeah, they, they came up with this Disco High School idea. And... Uh, 
they were just looking for a group to be in it. So it could it could have been anyone. The Ramones, I think, happened to be the band of the time. Yeah, it's a good, it, it's a fun film though. And um, even though it's set in contemporary, it's supposed to be set in 1980, in much the same way that the Ramones were a bubblegum throwback to the to the 60s, uh, in much the same way Joe Dante is. Um, the the film seems to be somewhat timeless. It seems to be set in the 50s. Like, yeah. I, I, it's, it's an odd. Oh, it it does not feel like it's from 1980 or even the late 70s at all. I think they were looking at people like Cheap Trick and all sorts of people. That makes it. sense, yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily have been the Ramones, but uh, but but yeah, that's so yeah. That just drawing that that anarchic uh, anarchic line out. Dante's last bona fide hit and really only one of two hits in his career and what we'd like to see is a Hollywood which uh, has room for failure or relative failure I don't mean indulging Michael Cimino in perpetuity but what Dante seemed to achieve was the kind of Hollywood career that Luke and I would like to see given to interesting directors which is that Piranha and the Howling were underground smashes when mm-hmm. he went legit with Gremlins, it was a huge hit, mm-hmm. and that gave him helped. Helped, I'm sure, in part with the the whole. I mean, most people probably thought that was a Steven Spielberg. Oh yeah, film. without the, doubt. The, yeah, the, the, the name is huge on the market. Yeah. Um, and that gave him the currency to commit to whatever he wanted to do for a bit. None of those films made money. Then he came back with the Burbs, and that grossness of that then gave him license to make Gremlins two how he wanted to, and Matinee how he wanted to. And as we've said, yeah, it's been lean times for the last 25 years, even though, again, Spielberg through DreamWorks gave him small soldiers. And, you know, it's not it's not Joe Dante at his purest, but it still contains some punk messages, some interesting counterculture stuff. There's a lot of anti-war stuff in there, I think, which is an undercurrent previous film, Matinee, as Mm. well. Um, and I, oh man, should we be talking about this? We're darting all around. But Matinee is a film I love because it's a, a film literally, it's, it's most autobiographical film. It is set in the 60s. It centers on a young boy who is into um, genre films and, and B-movies who wants to go and see um, this film that's coming coming to town. And John Goodman uh, playing the big, the big B-movie producer is going to come into town and, and, and present the film. And there's there's an undercurrent to it throughout the whole thing, which gives it its power of the threat of um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. You, you keep seeing the news reports on the telly. You see the kids have to do the drills. At some point, you see that they see the alarm go off at school, and the kids don't even know if it is a drill or not. And mm. uh, Joe Dante has talked extensively around that was his upbringing. You didn't know if if it was the end of the world. And um, there's a really powerful scene when all the kids are doing the duck and cover because they think it's about to ha- the bomb's about to drop. And then one of his, the, his classmates, is the, the girl, is saying, 
don't, don't you're all idiots you know this isn't going to save you do you honestly think Duck and Cover's going to save and the teacher's trying to shut her up because yeah. they know she's right and matinee is, although it's this madcap anarchic romp through a cinema uh, on on one crazy night with, with all of the, the, the young love and hormones running around hmm. people dressed up as mants men who are ants yeah. uh, th- th- there's loads of fun stuff in there at the end when the Cuban Missile Crisis is is over and we hear that it's over, um, he 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 wanted to get one more shot, and the the film as it ended initially was just, and now it's over and and everyone's happy. And he realised that he needed something a bit more powerful. So the final shot of the film is on a beach when his main characters go out and they see some uh, army helicopters flying over, uh, with the music playing at the moment is uh, over that though that moment is in the in the jungle the lion sleeps tonight which is a, a film a song that um the character's brother uh, the character plays to his younger brother on the radio to um w- when they're trying to sleep at night when they think that the missiles are coming uh, to try and comfort him and get his younger brother to sleep so as that that swells and you get that innocence of youth come back there's these military helicopters that you know in a few short years are going to be deployed in Vietnam. Yeah. And you also know in a few short years, those kids that are on the beach that were just going to see that B-movie and were dressed as, as ant people and running around and fancying girls, they're going to be dropped from those helicopters in, into Vietnam. And that that's that's powerful, in much the same way that the uh, the way American graffiti ends when our, our characters go off to university or whatever, but then um, but then we get the, the, the little vignette at the end which explains that one or two of them went to Vietnam, maybe didn't come back. So uh, without saying any words, just without, just with this pop song, stupid novelty pop song, and uh, and the sight of these helicopters, suddenly that whole, it crystallizes that moment. So um, so yeah, there, there's that war message. And, and going into Small Soldiers, what you were just talking about, there's, although it, it's an attempt at like a family comedy action film it's kind of gremlins 3 he has said yeah. it's kind of gremlins 3 it's toys that come to life at the time a lot of people wrote it off as oh it's like a toy story gone bad film which it, it isn't it, it's it does talk it does have a lot to say about um the, the the folly of of um war and and scientific research to that end uh and that kind of thing so that it, it is there it is it is a part of it and also phil hartman's last film and we should always remember it, yeah. remember it for that Good old Phil. One of my favourite Joe Dante scenes across his entire oeuvre is in Matinee, and it involves the parents of the character you've just mentioned. So it's Lisa Jacobs' character who's running around during the drill telling people the truth of the matter, which is uh, duck and cover will do no good against nuclear bombs. Mm. Now there's a bit... And, and this is what this is how J- Joe Dante is subversive in two ways in this particular scene. So... Um, John Goodman, as the William Castle-style impresario, Lawrence Wolsey, turns up outside of the movie theatre to promote his film. Already there is a couple of people, of course, who he's hired to protest the film, played by Johnny Sales, the writer, and the Mm. wonderful Dick Miller. They're playing this thing on Saturday unless you people stop them. Ask the people that run this theatre. Ask them why they're selling this town's kids, your kids, down the river. Look at this. Monsters taking women and... Wait a minute. Have you seen the movie? No, I haven't, miss. Uh-huh. I haven't been down and taken a tour of the sewer either, but I know what's down there. This guy, Woolsey, his pictures are all the same. A cheap, sick thrill for a bunch of hop-headed What teenagers. about, like, letting people make their own decisions? Yeah. Oh, sure, let the kids see it. 
And let him wake up screaming every night. Let him forget about church and about school and about... Oh, man, come on. Sure, and let the fellows at the base come down here, too. Just when this country needs to be strong. Are you saying these people are commies? No, it's not about politics. Hold on. Hold on a minute. It's him. I'm Lawrence Woolsey. Who are you fellows? We're from Citizens for Decent Entertainment, Mr. Woolsey. Well, I've never heard of your organization. Well, you're gonna hear. But I don't think you're being very fair to my movie. Fair to your movie in Little Rock, pal. Look what it got him. Full-scale panic? People terrified? Let him finish. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I don't have a big speech to make, but... <clears throat> I was under the impression that Key West was a pretty sophisticated place. Not like coming to some hick town. Aw, oh, man, do your worst. <laughs> what I would like to do is hand out some free passes so people can decide for themselves if this movie is really so terrible. That's fair. Now, it's true that my movies show things that others won't show, things that some people say are shocking, Things that some people are scared to even imagine. But is that really more terrible than the world we live in every day? That's a real pretty speech, pal. Does that help you sleep nights while you're turning kids into juvenile hoodlums? I sleep like a baby, my friend. Are you going to get free passes? Here you go, Sonny. Here. Maybe you two could decide for yourselves. Thanks, but that's not the way we get our kicks. What about the First Amendment? There's no First Amendment to the Ten Commandments, pal. Lisa Jacobs' parents, a couple of beatniks, they're there and they say, hey, yeah, this, you know, we, we're free thinking. We should be able to make up our own minds. So Joe Dante is, first he's showing how an understanding of that mentality can be exploited by Lawrence Wolsey because he's essentially astroturfed the protest against his own film. But while Joe Dante would sympathise with the free thinkers and the beatniks, he's also drawing back another curtain to tell us, yeah, but there are still people who know how to exploit those free thinkers for their own commercial mm. gain. Obviously, he's talking about Hollywood there. It's meant to be William Castle. But that's a, that's mm. a really terrific scene. And then it's when I talk about being let on, uh, being let into a secret, like I feel the cinematography does in the Burbs. There's that in the matina in matinee as well, where Simon Fenton's character sees the protest. And then he remembers something. He's looking through his uh, movie magazine when he sees Dick Miller's character is actually an actor in the Lawrence Wolsey <laughs> films. And he realises, mm. essentially, oh, this is the way the world works. That's interesting. Yeah. I thought it was cool as well that in quite a few of these pictures, the Joe Dante's protagonists are protagonists that uh, they're creative or they're at least still in touch with um, the vitality of youth, not a childish naivety, not necessarily optimism, but mm. that feeling when you're 12 or 13 years old and you're desperate to consume, but desperate to understand. And as we've talked about, find the weirdest, oddest opinions you can and involve yourself with those. He does that with Matinee wonderfully. And it like in Gremlins, Billy, I think Billy Peltzer is a bit of a bland protagonist. But he's, he's an a artist. Very bland he's a, you know, he's, yeah, he's, he's a, a, yeah. a restricted, repressed artist working in the bank. But his father's an inventor, and that's explored mm. again in Gremlins too. And there's what are the other instances where we have that uh, in the Howling. She's a journalist, and she, you know, she is a storyteller like some of the other Joe Dante lead characters. I like. Yeah, I, and, I found she, that was and pronounced. she's and she's going outside of the boxes as well. Instead of just being a news anchor, she is. Uh, putting herself on the line to um, indulge the advances of a stalker yeah. uh, w whilst wearing a wire to try and get this um, 
you know, kind of gonzo journalistic uh, first-hand experience of, of, of dealing with this, this stalker of hers who's been approaching her. Whereas, of course, she, she didn't need to do that at all. She she could have she was a news anchor in the studio. She could could have been perfectly comfortable. So so yeah, she she's going that extra mile to um to, to get to get the story. So yeah, exactly right. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other examples. Of, well, in um, in Small Soldiers, the part of the gig is that Kevin Dunn, the father character, he's a he owns a toy shop, but is it his moral stand that he doesn't like war toys that's it yeah so yeah, again a, and, uh, but no no one buys any of the any of the toys because they're they're boring or whatever yeah yeah a, a character who is still connected to a feeling of juvenile vitality let's right let's move on to the burbs otherwise uh we'll completely run out of we time never on know one we, of the masterworks we, we, yeah we Let's do let's let's do the burbs. One of the masterworks, like you say, one of the one of the few times that it really did make money. And to segue, I guess Tom Hanks coming off the back of a whole load of great comedies. He was right in the middle of that comedy period, coming mm. off the back of Splash and Big. But yeah, I think, Splash I think was you... earlier. Splash with Ron Howard, because uh, Ron mm. imagine Ron Howard's company with Brian Grazer. They produced the burbs, and oh yeah, I always think that there's um well, ha- Tom Hanks has worked with Howard throughout his career. But I always feel that there are conversations in the background where I think Hanks having worked with Howard on Splash, then given the screenplay for the Burbs, uh, lined mm. up for that project, would say to Ron Howard, oh, you're, you know, you're producing this. So what do you reckon? Is he worth the damn? And Ron can say, well, actually, you know, I've known Joe Dante since Grand Theft Auto back in the late 70s when we were both palling <laughs> around with Coleman. And uh, yeah, I think we can have a lot of fun with this one, Tom. Because I, I read that, mm. for instance, it's... This is it's funny to think about this, but Tom Hanks is almost too young to play the guy he plays because just as he you is, said, he's yeah. coming out of that comedy run around the time Terminator and Hooch was uh, shot and released around that time. But he's had mm-hmm. Money Pit, Dragnet, Punchline, Man with One Red Shoe, much earlier with Carrie Fisher. He was America's comedy guy, and mm-hmm. yeah, he's only you, you've got to presume that his character is a young father, but still like thirty-two, maybe thirty-five. And he yeah, himself, yeah. Hanks himself, had said, am I playing dads already? Maybe this is a bit premature. And he was assured, no, listen, don't worry, it's going to work out. Because he's, um, I think it does require him to be that she's having a baby, John Hughes' suburban father, who's kind of mm. stuck there. There's not meant to be any energy. If if they didn't have a child, him and Carrie Fisher, who plays his wife, the the dynamic would be quite different. But yeah. they need to be entrenched in suburbia. They do. They they need to be. They need to be stuck there. Mm. Um, and he. It, we don't. We don't know what job he does. Actually, he do, he doesn't seem to have that creative spark you were talking about mm. or, or, or a career. We just know that he's burnt out and he's done. And he just wants to um, to stay at home. He sounds a lot like me. I must admit, <laughs> I've, uh, if if I've got a week off, I'm not even joking. We, Lex and I will often have this conversation. She'll go, "What do you want to do? Let's let's go out." And I I just go. No, you you think we should go to this nice place or whatever, but you know that's an hour down the A11, and I got to go all the way down there. I got to fight the traffic. <laughs> I got to, and then, then I got to queue, and then I got to go. I just want to sit here in the house, uh, just chill out. I just listen. I have a few beers, and I'll listen to the football. You call going up to the lake resting. It is four hours of driving on the tollway in holiday traffic to sit in some dank, wet cabin and, and wait for that neighbor with the enormous head to get drunk and fall down the stairs. He's a hydrocephalic and I don't think that you should make Honey, fun. Honey, it just, that's not my idea of restful, alright? This is restful. 
hanging around the house, just being lazy, and that's what I want to do. I just want to hang around, be lazy, listen to the ball game, and you know, drink a couple hundred beers and maybe smoke an occasional cigar outside. I'll, I'll fix the barbecue in the backyard if you want me to. I'll do that. All right, this is what I need, Carol. I, I need this. And you'll see, at the end of the week, I'll, I'll be a brand new human being. Yeah, I, I, I have to be careful with myself and self-generate activities because I, it, in the relationships <laughs> I've known and in most of the relationships to which I can refer are male-female, and I know that too often it's the girl saying, let's do this, and the bloke saying, yeah, all right. You've got to think up your own shit. Because <laughs> on a long enough time scale, eventually they'll say, you don't ever come up with anything for us to do, motherfucker. What are we, come on. I'm always thinking of stuff. Yeah, but, I, you know, and the truth of a bloke is like, I could happily sit here for 10 hours. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm unfit or unhealthy. I'll go for a run in that time. Maybe I'll do some sit-ups. But I'm definitely lazy. I'm a man and I'm possibly lazy. So, yeah, so Ray Peterson, Tom Hanks, is a man with a week off work and it's his intention only to stay at home. And that's why the entire film is on their cul-de-sac. It doesn't leave the cul-de-sac. And it's the famous Colonial Street on the Universal backlot, which I don't know from Desperate Housewives, but apparently people do. But um, Joe Dante, in using it, is definitely referencing the sitcoms of the 50s and 60s. That's why Gail Gordon is cast. He was in I Love Lucy and worked with... Lucille Ball on a number of projects but it's harking back to Leave It to Beaver with the Mayfield Place Mm -hmm. that 50s, Mm -hmm. 60s wholesome environment so that's the setup, that's the the structure which because it's a Joe Dante film we know okay he's going to tear it down, he's going to build it up for us lay out the geography uh, explain the conventions and then (laughs) there will be chaos so where, where do we go from there, what did you make of it? Um, well, yeah. So, so we go from that that uh, setup of of suburbia, and we're introduced to some of the characters, aren't we? Everyone from Bruce Dern's uh, Rumsfeld, who's the ex uh, Marine or, uh, or army guy who, who who still salutes the flag every morning. Yeah. Um, we've got got Corey Feldman, who's just this um, chilled out teen. Uh, who, who who drifts in and out of the story depending on whatever's needed uh, of yeah. the, of him at that particular time. Um, we've got we got the neighbour, haven't we? Who who uh, has the, the the little tiny annoying dog that uh, that will shit on other people's lawns yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. But we go from this suburban neighbourhood to to B movie thrills, mm. and uh, the whole thing has that absurdist feeling you've got this fuzzy 80s middle class comedy like i say juxtaposed with this 50s b-movie feel um and it really does feel like the humor i think's ripped from the pages of national lampoon or, or, or mad magazine mm. like you say just te- tearing this whole thing down um and <laughs> the paper boy at the beginning will throw throw the throws the newspaper at tom hanks and then he throws his coffee back at him for example <laughs> so so some of it's just silly like that some of it's dark, really, really dark. So when when Tom Hanks uh, and his neighbour attempt to pluck up the courage to knock on the door of this peculiar family, and this is the crux of it, this peculiar family that have um, that have moved in across the street, and there's strange noises coming from the basement. Everyone is perplexed as to what this family's doing. They they finally pluck up the courage. They egg each other on, and and they go to knock on the door. The the number falls off, and out of the hole, there's just this swarm of bees erupt out of the hole. <laughs> and they, and they, Bruce Dern's great as well because he sees that some men are in trouble. And uh, he's, 
<laughs> he says he he gets the uh, hose pipe, doesn't he? And says, "Run to water, run yeah, to water, yeah. man, run to water." And he's he's shooting them with water. Um, and so yeah, you go from this real dark stuff, and there's some genuinely uh, little horror horror movie moments in there. Um, but but juxtaposed with sometimes just outright slapstick, like Bruce Dern uh, tripping over or or. or Falling over trying to get the hose pipe yeah. out, for example. Yeah, there's some terrific um, pratfalls in the in the climax um, when Courtney Gaines' character, the young Klopek, he slips over in a really fun way, and then Bruce Dern catches up to him and does the uh, "I was 18 months in the bush and I could snap your neck in a heartbeat" that bit. And <laughs> the, yeah, a lot of Rick DeCommon stuff. Um, it's I think that's it has well deployed physical comedy throughout from all of its characters. It reminds you how funny how Tom Hanks is naturally funny. I don't know if he can be an improviser like the Judd Patel crew, but the way he moves his arms, he, the way he flails yeah. his limbs, and the manner in which he can beat his own chest or well, crush he, a beer can, you know, he looks like Woody. I, yeah, I, I'm yeah. not joking. There, yeah. there, there must have been. Look, we know how animation works. You know we, that there is Tom Hanks in Woody. Yeah. Even I, I know he's not doing motion capture for God's sake, but there's inspiration there for the animators. And uh, at the end, when uh, he's he's been blown up, uh, I've been blown up, and and he and he he gets the uh, like the gurney, the uh, stretcher, and he just picks it up from the amp, throws it into the back of the ambulance, and then jumps onto it like a rag doll. Yeah. Uh, Oh, take me to the hospital. I've been blown up. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it is superb. And you reminded me that um, that early sequence in which, uh, as Bruce Dern says, uh, they're daring each other to ring the doorbell. The film starts as it means to go on with the, a superb Jerry Goldsmith score. Kicks in oh, immediately. Gorgeous. But then the choice of music, uh, once again, it, it's satirical and subversive. But so well deployed. So in in those scenes, in the scenes where they knock on the door, um, first Jerry Goldsmith uses his own score from Patton, the the military which, style, reaches, which is which is picked up in Small Soldiers as well. Yeah, yeah. So reaches yeah. back within his own filmography for that one, and then mm. they use a theme from My Name Is Nobody, post spaghetti western, but the score is by Ennio Morricone. For that, fant- yeah, yeah. that, that, the fantastic, then, yeah, the little last showdown kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. The, um, and then we're presented with a sequence of slow zooms into <laughs> close-up on faces, which culminate with a zoom to the dog. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? That's what Dante does well. It's in-universe, they don't know they're in a film, I suppose is what it is. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. the filmmakers make explicitly clear to the audience that we know it's a film, but there's never a surrender to ironic distanciation. We still care about the characters. So we know it's the theme from Patton being used, but that does, and we know it's the theme from My Name Is Nobody, but it doesn't make it any less awesome I, I, I love it. It's informed me in ways that it's, it's kind of difficult to express because, and that's the thing of cinema, isn't it? It's, it's the emotions while you're watching and the, the 
something inexpressible about the humour and excitement that's generated. But the score yeah. is Goldsmith's amazing throughout it. As the um, you mentioned, the early sequence after the opening credits, the we're introduced to this cul-de-sac by the by the paperboy, and that goes from house to house. The score is moving along nicely, and then when they get to Gail Gordon's introduction and his little dog, then Jerry Goldsmith adds a. Onto oh, the score. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it, yeah. So this is a guy who's been uh, scoring films we, we, in the 50s and 60s, but the move to synth was absolutely perfect, and to know when to deploy that. And, and yeah. then it moves on to uh, Ricky Butler's house with the dead little end. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Re- really skillful stuff from a bloke. Well, a- it again, is skillful. It's, it's that, that David Bowie mentality of always being open to ideas. It doesn't matter if you, people are now using synthesizers. Same principles, and Jerry Goldsmith knows that. Same principles, I can do this, it's not strings, but I, I know what to do, I'm a musician, I can, something's new, bring it into my repertoire. Go ahead, what were you going to say? Yeah. No, no, I, I was just going to say that this is straight out of Looney Tunes, you know, and, and, yeah, and that's, yeah. you know, we, we, we know that um, Dante is a massive um, Chuck Jones fan and, and, and uh, um, Looney Tunes fan. We have uh, the the opening um, of Gremlins 2 is literally Donald, uh, Daffy Duck and, and Bugs Bunny, um, doing the uh, with the whole looney tunes opening of uh, is it merrily we go merrily we go along or the looney tunes opening score and, and then they're having a fight and um jerry goldsmith fantastically um puts that together um and re- reproduces not only that looney tunes music but then when they start to have the argument the ho- it sounds like the orchestra's falling over and and, and the whole thing <laughs> yeah. is it? so again even deconstructing the looney tunes who who themselves are um, yeah. deconstructing the world that we live in. And going back to what you're saying about how the um, the dog sound effect is on the score. Yeah. Of, oh, 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 oh. That he does that all over Gremlins. So yeah. as part of this week at work, um, uh, I'm lucky enough that I can put headphones in for five minutes at a time before someone comes up and asks me a question about something. Yeah. And uh, I, I've been listening on and off to um, the, the the small soldiers score, but also the two gremlins ones um, just to just to immerse myself back into the world of Jerry Goldsmith. And you know, the, the, even in the gremlins score, the, the, the sound effects of the gremlins are, are in the score, um, yeah. which, which is, and, and, <laughs> when I was watching Looney Tunes back in action, you were talking about how Goldsmith fantastically references himself. There's a moment where, uh, sorry, where um, Daffy Duck and Brendan Fraser are running to get into a car. And the car they get into is a gremlin. Next stop, Las Vegas. We'll take my dad's old car. Ah, a super spy car. Let's rock. This isn't a spy car. <laughs> Your dad's a spy, ipso ergo, a spy car. Used to deliver pizzas in this car. Secret pizzas? <laughs> we have Jerry Goldsmith doing a reprise of the of the Gremlins theme as as they jump into the car. So uh, yeah, he, he it's fantastic, and so two people working very well together. And um and and like 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 I, I said, I don't think I quite finished the point, but that whole going back to Carl, what Carl Stalling did with um with Looney Tunes with the music there. Because um, people forget this, okay? Looney Tunes was a cynical move on the part of Warner Brothers to take on the silly symphonies of Walt Disney. So what Walt Disney was doing, because sound was this really big new thing, we could sync sound to cartoons, um, he had what he called the silly symphonies. And if you if you want to understand Disney at all, if you want to understand why Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is one of the greatest animated pictures ever made, you have to watch all of the silly symphonies that lead up to that and a lot of the, the, the Mickey Mouse and Goofy shorts 
to understand, oh, Christ, he made a whole film with everything that he'd learned and, and all of the tools at his disposal. They made a, a film of this. Mm. And, and that's the only way you can really... All roads begin and end with, in my opinion, with Snow White in terms of, in terms of Walt Disney animation. So he had the Silly Symphonies, which was set to... Uh, classical music, classical pieces, and he was doing the Ugly Duckling and all this very safe, innocuous stuff, but nevertheless gorgeous to look at, utterly beautiful. Then some Warner Brothers guy woke up one day and figured out, well, hold on, we own all of these um, pop hits. Why don't we set those to, uh, to to some animations? So they did, and then you got the, the Looney Tunes and the Merry Melodies. And, and what Carl Stalling did going back to Jerry Goldsmith, was he, he would have, he, he would work in all of these popular uh, songs that, that Warner Brothers owned the rights to uh, because they wanted to sell sheet music and sell recordings. But, but then he would, he would riff on them. And then, of course, when someone was doing an action or falling over or, or being blown up, that would obviously work in sync with, with, with the music. So when you actually listen to, and you can listen to this stuff on Spotify, if you listen to the Carl Stalling Project, which is the, the Warner Brothers um, uh, Looney Tunes soundtracks, you, you can hear that. And it's this madcap exercise where it goes from popular song to popular song interspersed with with this, 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 these sound effects that are purely, p- completely in time with whatever action is obviously going on on the screen. Goldsmith does that in spades throughout his career, including Gremlins, but, but certainly, like you were just saying, with the Burbs as well. So much Dante, mucho Dante. In fact, more Dante than we had originally anticipated. And so we shall continue this conversation in a second part. In the meantime, you're very welcome to join us on Instagram, where you'll find the lavish praise I heaped upon Gremlins 2 when I rewatched it a couple of months ago, and weekly updates on what's spinning in my Laserdisc player and in my VCR. Speaking of Laserdiscs and tapes, and DVDs and posters and collected ephemera from three decades of movies and music. Our eBay is one sensational shop. Your visit would be very much appreciated. Please do try to spend something while you're there. All funds go towards the running of the site. Keep listening to us on iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher and on our own website where you'll find a multitude of articles. Please give them a read. OneSensationalShop.com You'll be hearing from us again very soon.